Hello and welcome to Keeping It Real, where we're going to dive into the mysterious world of plastic surgery. My name's Alex, and each episode I'm sitting down with the respected surgeons Dr. Richard Bloom and Dr. Kim Taylor from Replastic Surgery, and we're going to ask all the hard questions that you want the answers to. Moisture not coming in, saying I want to look like Posh Spice or Pamela Anderson. And so it can be quite life-changing for them. And um, we see improvements in their self-esteem, their confidence. If someone's had good work done, then no, I don't, I don't believe it is obvious. If you're having a breast augmentation, you know, you don't want to be going to the plastic surgeon who does road trauma. The breast augmentation journey can be a long and emotional journey with some women taking years to make up their minds. So this episode, we dive into the basics about what types of surgery women can have, how to pick a good surgeon, and what can happen in rare cases where something goes wrong. Thank you so much for joining us again, Richard and Kim. Thanks for having us back. Good to see you, Alex. So I guess this is the question that a lot of women have on the beginning of the journey is what surgery they should actually get. So what is the difference between an augmentation and a lift? It's like asking what's the difference between a a car and an aeroplane. They're kind of completely different. So breast augmentation is where we put an implant into the breast to increase the breast volume. So it's done through a little incision in the fold underneath the breast. um, And and so it increases the size and volume of the breast. A breast lift actually moves the position of the nipple, which is generally in these cases sitting below the fold and repositions it so it's more centered on the breast. So there's more scars involved. So there's usually a scar around the areola, then a scar that goes vertically down from the areola into the fold, and then a scar in the fold. And then we often either remove or reposition that any breast tissue that might be hanging below the fold. So that that's what's involved in a in a lift. And a lift is, is also part of any breast reduction. So th- there's more of a blend between a breast lift and a breast reduction than an, an augmentation and a lift. Occasionally a patient um, wants or requires both an augmentation and a lift. So if they've got droopy breasts and they want the shape improved, but they also want an augmentation, that's an operation that Richard and I generally perform as a two-stage We believe that the best outcomes can be achieved by doing that and it's much, much more safer for a patient to be able to do those procedures in two operations. The first would be doing the lift initially, so essentially returning their breast to a normal position, letting all those scars heal before then several months later then deciding on an implant size and then performing the breast augmentation. Our belief is that when you do those two operations as one, that they're sort of working against each other. So an augmentation is aiming to stretch up the tissues and increasing the volume, whereas a lift you're aiming to remove as much skin and to tighten all the tissues as much as possible. So you either can't do a good lift or you can't do a good augmentation if you're doing them both together. And by putting an implant in, it's introducing a foreign body into a patient and then you're adding a significant volume of scarring over the top and the risks of having wound breakdown or infection are increased in combining those two procedures. And the very, very worst case scenario is to have a breast implant that gets infected, which then means more surgery anyway, removing the implant and you kind of back it square one anyway. So 
our belief is that to aim to do it as a stage two-stage operation rather than doing it as one and then having to do revisionary surgery, trying to fix up problems, it is much safer and a much more reliable, predictable outcome doing it that way. Do you ever get a woman that comes in that thinks that she's going to get implants, but actually there's there's different ways of doing it, such as a lift? Yeah, very much so. And expanding on what Kim has said, because we generally split the two operations and, and sometimes women are a little bit disappointed and there might be other surgeons who've said, no, no, you can do them easily together. I would say of the women who come in, I mean, there's a, certainly a group who have no breast tissue and they need a lift and then they'll definitely have a breast implant. But there's a big group who, after the lift, actually have um, much more projection than what they think. And then even though they were adamant that they wanted to have augmentation, they then don't want to have an augmentation. So I think I think of the group in the middle, there's people who never don't want an implant. There are people who definitely want one. And then there's a whole lot in the middle. And of those whole lot in the middle, probably only 50% go on to then have a breast augmentation. And the reason is when you're doing a lift, you actually reshape the, the breast and you use some of the breast tissue to give the breast more shape and more projection. So, so the actual breast shape is much better. And I mean, we both show patients cases where we've done a reduction, but because the shape is so much better, they almost look like they've had an implant. Uh, so as surprising as it might be, yeah, often they get away with just having a lift. I'm guessing they're pretty happy when that is the case. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have to go through a surgery again. Well, you don't have to have a second surgery. You don't have to have an implant. And one of the cases that you guys have seen where getting a breast implants has really changed a woman's life for the better? Certainly in those women that are very, very self-confident, self-conscious, sorry, and don't like wearing nice clothes, are really embarrassed about going to the pool or to the beach. Having a breast augmentation or having breast implants placed, it gives them back their womanly figure. They feel a lot more confident and comfortable wearing the clothing that they wish to wear. We have a lot of women coming in now saying that my goal is to have nice shape without having to wear a bra. And so obviously you don't want to make them too big because then the implant weighs down with when they're not wearing a bra. So something that's in a natural shape, natural size, natural shape, that they can then wear whatever kind of clothing over the top that they like. It's quite an interesting topic. That That is what we all hear women commonly talking about is they don't want to wear bras anymore. Is that actually the case after you get surgery that you can walk around technically without... Absolutely. Anyway. And I, I certainly say that to my breast reduction patients as well. The Those that have worn, you know, up to double G or bigger bras and, you know, some of their motivation there purely is to be able to like, I, I just want to put on a t-shirt and not have to wear a bra. And yeah, genuinely can do that with, with the right sized breast augmentation, but also with the right sized breast reduction or lift as well for that matter. And it's actually an, usually an interesting part of the consultation because they're actually quite sheepish when they bring it up. So you'll be in the middle of a consultation and asking you, what are your aims and goals? What do you hope to achieve? And they're almost embarrassed to say, well, I don't, I want to be able to not wear a bra and go, yeah, don't worry. That's what every single patient <laughs> says. So, yeah, it's really common. Uh, so what are the, some of the things that women say that they fear most about getting breast surgery? Uh, I, I mean, without doubt that the most common thing is fear around the actual day of the surgery and the anesthetic. You know, by the time 
uh, they've been with us, we've gone through the procedure and what's involved. And I think they've got a pretty good understanding of that. But for those women who've never had an anesthetic, that is always something that's in the back of their mind, particularly the ones who have children and, and they, they, they sort of, there's an element of guilt about having this surgery and being away from their children. I would have thought that's, that would be the biggest thing that women would talk about in terms of their fears. I do agree, Kim. Absolutely. And also the recovery is a bit of an unknown too. So no one really knows exactly what their pain is going to be like compared to anyone else's. But it's generally a procedure that's not significantly painful to get over. Women commonly describe it as, if they've had kids, the feeling of when their breast milk comes in, that fullness and tightness. Maybe that combined with doing a hard chest workout at the gym as well. Other questions they may ask is around being able to look after their children in that post-operative period. When can they drive? Generally, it can be within the first week, so when they're safe and comfortable to do those things. And then also getting back to exercise. So a lot of people freak out a bit when you tell them that we don't want you to be doing any significant exercise for a number of weeks. But it doesn't mean you have to sit on the couch for that period of time. So all these patients can, we encourage them to move, um, gentle movement um, from day one, essentially. And I guess for most women, this it, it does go perfectly fine for the majority of women, but there are cases where things go wrong. What are some of the examples of what you guys have had to deal with in and, and before the surgery? Uh, well, I mean, as you say, I mean, anything kind of can go wrong, but generally nothing does. I mean, that's what our training is about and patient selection and, and doing it. But just just as an example of where things can go wrong that you not could never possibly anticipate, almost 12 months ago to the day, I had a patient on the operating table asleep and the um, alarms go off in the hospital to say that there's a bomb threat in the hospital and we've got to evacuate. Um and so obviously sort of everyone runs to the hills except for me, the anaesthetist and uh, the anaesthetic nurse. Um, and we, had, we hadn't started the operation, fortunately. So we had to wake her up, which was, as you can imagine, difficult because we had to wake her up and say, listen, everything's fine, but there's been a bomb threat in the hospital and we've got to evacuate you. And or was she, she upset that she hadn't well, had her surgery yet? Or? Well, that was her first concern was, have you done the surgery yet? And we said, no. She said, I'm not going home until you have it. This is sort of in the haze of an anaesthetic. So we had to actually take her out of the operating theatre and evacuate her across the road from the hospital until it was all cleared and it turned out to be a hoax and we were able to go back in. But just as an example, I mean, we go through an extensive list of potential things, but how can you ever predict that? But, you know... Testament to sort of all of our processes and the hospital processes, everyone responded as they should. And, you know, the, the patients were all evacuated and obviously it wasn't just our patient, the whole hospital was evacuated. And that comes, that comes back to sort of the safety and choosing the right surgeon and having a surgeon who is qualified and is operating in a, in a, uh, accredited hospital where all of these things have, uh, are sorted out and can be dealt with. So it's often the things, how can you predict that? You know, we don't go through and say, well, there could be a bomb threat in the hospital during your operation and this is what we do. So you just got to be prepared for everything. And I'm dying to know, did she end up getting the operation or did we, that put her off a little bit? No, no, no. We spent, uh, we spent about two hours in the park waiting for the police to clear the hospital and then we came back into the operating theatre and carried on and 
it's a funny story to tell uh, a year down the track. Indeed. <laughs> and Kim, have you ever had something not not a bomb scare, obviously, but have you ever had something happen in the in the room that was a little bit unexpected? Um, certainly nothing quite so dramatic as that. But as Richard said, in terms of the technicality of the surgery, there's a there's a lot of very small print, I guess, of um, potential complications. They're all very, very, very rare. The procedures are all done in a proper hospital with a fully trained anaesthetist. The patients are always completely off to sleep. Um, we do get patients that come into the rooms that say, like, can I have my surgery here in the office or in, in a sort of cut price, I guess, type of facility. And that's absolutely always a no to that question that everything's done very, very precisely. There's an anaesthetist present the entire time. The patients are monitored the entire time. So if something is going to go wrong, which is unpredictable, they're in the right place and they're being assessed and monitored by the right people. The surgery itself is is technically planned. Um, everything's done precisely under direct vision. Um, the, the, I guess the most commonest but also still very, very rare potential complication early on would be to have a bleed. And it does happen from time to time and patients are assessed and monitored. And when these things are picked up quickly, which they generally are, then the plan is to return back to theatre to fix the problem and the outcome's not compromised in the long term. But again, they're, they're very uncommon, but everyone around pre- and post-operatively is aware of what to look out for, patients are knowing what to expect. Yeah, and, and as to what Kim's saying, I mean, working in hospitals that specialise in the type of surgery we're doing, all of the staff know the things to look for. So as Kim said, bleeding is probably the most important thing. And we've both spent time with staff in the hospitals, talking to them about what they're meant to look for and notifying escalating things and feeling comfortable to escalate things when they're concerned about anything. But the type of bleeding that we're talking about, it's, 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 um, we're talking about blood vessels that are a millimetre in diameter. So they're really, really tiny and we seal them all off as we're going. But as Kim said, from time to time and it, for a breast augmentation, that might be maybe, um, you know, one in 200, one in 300 patients. But if it happens, it happens. You've got to deal with it. Kim, you touched on it before that there, unfortunately, there are doctors in this industry that are not as high quality as re-plastic surgery. What are some of the cases that you've seen women come to you with where they haven't had a quality practitioner? Um, certainly, we have extensive training in plastic surgery and we have qualifications through the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, which involves many years of training and then formal exams at the end. And we trained not just in cosmetic surgery, but in reconstructive surgery and also in ways to deal with not straightforward problems. So a lot of the things that we deal with during our training is is not just a simple, you know, if A, then B is the solution Whereas someone that has had less training and less experience across a broad spectrum of plastic surgery may be able to be like, oh, yeah, putting in a breast implant is a pretty simple operation, um, can do lots of those in a really, really short period of time. But if there's ever any issues or any complications, then that's when they run into strife. Also, if a patient's not actually suitable purely for a breast augmentation, maybe more suitable for a lift, but then they kind of think, oh, well, we'll just put a 
much bigger implant in and say, well, that's going to fix the problem. And then certainly it is not fixing what the problem is because they don't have the technical skills or ability to to either do that or to say no to the patient that's not suitable for that particular thing. So um, certainly one of the types of patients that I would more commonly see is someone that probably needed a lift as their first operation or a lift and then maybe implants afterwards has had way too big implants placed with the plan that they're going to help give them a lift. That causes many problems. One, it hasn't given them a lift and so they've still got droopy breasts. They've got massive implants that usually don't fit their frame, may have dropped uh, and usually they're, they're pretty unhappy with the outcome because their breasts are too big for what they originally wanted and they still have a droop. And so for us then to deal with that, you again on the back foot trying to start from scratch and sometimes it is better to actually take the implant out, let everything settle down and start from zero. But otherwise there's, there's a long consultation process that needs to be involved into how to achieve their their original goal once they're, that's that's already been messed up a little. And then the other more technical things that we see from breast augmentation done done uh, elsewhere, not at re, uh, where the pocket has been over dissected. So if someone has a breast implant, we make a very snug fit for the pocket. So the implant's not sliding all over the chest. So often if that gets over dissected, you get a situation where the breast falls off the chest, like back into the armpit. So that's a really important thing to um, to avoid, firstly, which is what we do. But then if you have to fix it, you need to do an internal bra type technique. Reinforcing the, the fold, so reinforcing the lower part. So that's sort of supporting the implant. So the implant then doesn't drop. So those two are both sort of talking about malposition of, of the implant. And then the third thing would be where, where surgeons have put the implant in the wrong pocket. So you can put the implant generally either over the muscle or under the muscle. Uh, and there are specific times where you would do one or the other. We m- predominantly do under the muscle because it gives a bit of more of a natural look and it holds the implant um, in a better position. And there are studies that show you get less capsular contracture, things like that. But also if you put it over the muscle and people, surgeons have underestimated the amount of soft tissue, it'll look really fake. And then probably the fourth thing would be where the implant is still really visible. And so you can see wrinkles and ripples. And that may be a problem with an implant choice. So they've chosen an implant which has a, where that's more common or um, they haven't assessed the soft tissues well enough and there's maybe there would have been a need for some fat grafting to help camouflage the thinner parts of the, the skin so that the implant still looks natural and, and is not visible. How often do you see a patient come in that has had done work elsewhere that needs to be fixed? Yeah, I'd say it's now probably 10 or 20% of our practice at, at Re. So as we've become more established and known for doing breast surgery, people know, know our results and come to see us when they've had problems elsewhere. So it's certainly become much more common um, than, than what it was, say, five years ago. And what is the impact on their psychological health for these women? It can be quite significant because they went into their first surgery trusting the process and obviously trusting the person that they'd chosen to do that and have not received the outcome that they were expecting. So um, they're often quite upset and potentially angry. Um, And there's also 
quite a significant financial impact as well because um, most of these procedures are revisionary procedures are not covered by Medicare or insurance. So um, if if we're seeing someone else's patients, uh, then we're still needing to um, charge them for the procedure that they're having done and the hospitals have uh, considerable cost involved as well and new implants cost more money too. So um, it can be a, a really, really tricky process for these people um, and these women that are you know, fairly upset and uh, angry and sometimes sometimes litigious, but sometimes they just they just want to be fixed and returned either back to normal or to uh, what their expectations were. And I guess w- give me an example of a case where you've been really horrified by what has happened. Um, I, th- I think probably uh, the worst ones are where people have, have used an implant that's just way too big. And so then the, the whole soft tissue has just been stretched um, and that the implant sitting way too, too lateral. So sort of in the, like out in the armpit or it's dropped down below the fold and it's totally out of proportion with their, their frame. Um, and the issue with that is then trying to reduce that soft tissue back, putting everything back where it was and then trying to do an implant. Um, and it's not uncommon in that scenario where you might stage it as we've talked about with lifts and take the implant out, get everything back into where it should be, um, let everything settle down and then come back. And hopefully then you're dealing with almost a situation like a, a primary augmentation. So obviously we've touched on Australian doctors, but a lot of women are heading overseas these days to get to get an operation in Thailand along with their holiday. You know, what are some of the problems with people heading offshore? Um, I think over the last few years, the number of uh, women heading overseas has probably dropped uh, somewhat, which is great. And I think it's to do with uh, education and them informing themselves um, but certainly the idea of a cosmetic holiday just seems so ridiculous, really. Um, having surgery is not a holiday. Um, and particularly going to a country where it's hot and humid, you generally don't speak the same language. And um, they've potentially spent all their accessible money to go and have that procedure done. Um, if something goes wrong, uh, they struggle to stay there for any longer um, or if they come back to Australia and then have problems, then sure, the surgeons are readily available via um, email and phone calls, but the patient actually has to return back over there if they wish to have it touched up or anything fixed by those surgeons. Um, and so it, for us, we would strongly recommend that um, people have surgery locally, essentially, um, we're available after, after I've operated on a patient, I'm available 24 seven to them. Um, if they've got a problem, they can contact me. Um, if I'm not available, they can contact Richard and vice versa. So, um, it's not about just having an operation and then having a holiday. It's about, um, having an operation, having the adequate recovery, but also the long term. Um, for all of the operations that we perform, we would be seeing our patients for a minimum of four months afterwards. Um, generally for a breast augmentation, um, we would see them again at a year and then offer to see them um, even yearly after that, forever after, essentially. My father's not medical at all, but uh, he, he, he always he's always said, told us 
uh, the cheap is expensive. And I think in this case, it, it's, it's so true. Uh, when I compare and contrast the journey that a re-patient would have, um, they almost invariably engage with our practice before they even make a consultation. So they'll talk to our staff, they'll follow us on Instagram, they'll ask other patients questions. They then come into the practice, meet everyone. They spend an hour with me and Kim. Um, during that, they also meet with our nurse. So, so that's the person generally the first contact if after the uh, surgery, if they have any um, questions. We use a software then um, where we can draw on the patients and um, it goes and we go through that with them and it goes through the entire operation. Um, and so, we, you know, we've spent an hour with them um, and they've been in the practice probably for an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, then we do their, their um, surgery. Um, and so we really feel that they know us quite well. They've had plenty of time to ask questions. And you compare that to someone flying to uh, Thailand who, who might meet their surgeon maybe the day before if they're lucky, oftentimes the morning of the surgery. Um, and then as Kim was saying, well, what do you do if something goes wrong? You like, you know, email someone, what are they going to do from through an email? And the other thing about just meeting them on the day of the surgery, there's no time to really um, make sure that you're all on the same page. So if there's any slight uh, misunderstanding or if uh, everyone's not totally sure about what the goals are or what size implants are going to be used, for example, um, we commonly would see a patient more than once before their surgery. So um, as Richard's mentioned about the software, we've, we also have 3D camera, 3D software where um, we can trial essentially different implants on your body on the the real 3D image of the patient that's wanting to have um, the augmentation. And so they can return back to us and have a look at different size implants and um, discuss further questions that things that can't just be done via telephone or email that face-to-face uh, -face consultation is is um, really gold in that and it, it's not uncommon to see people twice before having an operation um, occasionally three or even four times um, over a period of time of sometimes a few years before they've come to um, the final decision of yes the time is right now for me to go ahead with my procedure. Well, I guess that leads us on to qualifications. Yep. How yep. important is that when you're looking for a surgeon? Yeah. Um, and this is, there's a bit of an anomaly in the Australian system. So Kim and I are both um, fellows of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, which um, mean, which is the only re government recognised body to train surgeons. The problem in Australia is, and this will shock everyone listening, but uh, the problem in Australia is that a basic medical degree is referred to as a, an MBBS, which is Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery. And at, historically, um, people, doctors, any doctor with that degree were able to perform um, minor surgery, which was designed so that they could provide some service in rural areas. The problem, and there's now no need for that because there's surgeons sort of everywhere, but the problem is there are some entrepreneurial type doctors who uh, use that just to bait, like same training as a GP um, and do some of the plastic surgery uh, operations um, because they can be uh, lucrative. And uh, they can title themselves cosmetic surgeon because there's no 
protection on that title. There's no actual qualification of cosmetic surgeon in this country. And so anyone with a basic medical degree can title themselves as a cosmetic surgeon. And is there any estimate of how many doctors are actually, you know, performing these procedures that have... It's really hard to know, but they often have, you know, really glamorous websites. Um, they can't generally operate in the hospitals that we can operate because they won't pass their accreditation processes because they're not surgeons. So they build their own hospitals and their own theatres, which for an average woman coming in, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Like there's an operating table, there's operating lights. Um, uh, it, it looks like a hospital, but you don't know that hospitals, actual hospitals need to go under regular scrutiny by regulators to make sure they're um, up to the total, um, the standards that uh, are, are expected in Australia, whereas some of these facilities don't. Now, there aren't moves in government to try and restrict that so that uh, those sorts of facilities are going to be closed down, but they, they're still available. Um, and in terms of the titling, so the analogy, sure. So the problem we have is that cosmetic surgeon is, is not a restricted title. So our title is plastic surgeon and um, cosmetic surgeon anybody can use. So if the, the, the problem doesn't arise in other specialties, so if you're a GP, you could call yourself a brain surgeon because that's not a protected title as opposed to neurosurgery. But no GP is going to start operating on the brain. So there's no demand for people to do that. That's why plastic surgery is sort of trapped in this little space where uh, we're a bit vulnerable to that sort of thing. So um, it is really important for, for potential patients to check credentials. The credentials to check for are FRACS, which is a fellowship of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. Um, and then if you're a plastic surgeon, um, it'll have the letters PLAS after it. And the other place to check is the APRA website, which is the medical board. So you can check on the medical board and check your surgeon's credentials and see what they're registered as. If they're registered as a GP, then they're a GP. Um, we would be registered as specialist surgeons. And so would you recommend anyone that has a surgery in mind to go and check yeah. it out thoroughly? I, I think that's number one on your checklist before you go and see them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Keeping It Real. To keep up with our next episodes, go and subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you have further questions or want to take the next step, visit www.replasticsurgery.com.au or follow Re on social media. If you want to put any questions to our experts or join the conversation, head on over to our Re Girls Facebook group.